Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 36, I interview Chad Wilhelm, the founder and managing director of Wilhelm Integrated Solutions a company specialising in equipment and technology solutions for high-risk clinical environments such as operating rooms, intensive care units and emergency departments, helping them work towards their goal of zero infections and zero harm. We discuss Chad's journey from Canada to Australia, why watching 100-plus colleagues be let go in a single day triggered him to start his own business, which is now the fastest-growing healthcare startup in Australia, growing 44% last financial year and doing nearly $11 million in annual revenue. Why using automated disinfecting lights and robots to tackle COVID-19 could be a game changer in the future. If you are a healthcare professional interested in reducing harm and reducing infections, check out wilhelm.com.au. That's W-I-L-H-E-L-M.com.au. So I'm here with Chad Wilhelm, the founder and managing director of Wilhelm Integrated Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thanks for having me, Derek. That's all right. So can you tell us where did it all begin? Where did you grow up and what was your sort of early childhood and life like? Well, you'll probably be able to tell from my accent here on this interview that I wasn't born in Aussie. Uh, I was actually born and raised in uh, the farming heartland of Canada in Saskatchewan. You know, it's a great place to grow up where strong family values and the merit of hard work are definitely installed in you. And, I mean, were you one of those kids who always dreamed of the big lights and the big city and, and, and from an early age, did you want to sort of go abroad and do bigger things or, or was there a lot of pressure to sort of stay and, and stay in that tight-knit community? No, I, I think that's, a good, that's an interesting question. Um, no, I probably always had a desire to go out and explore and, and kind of see what the world had to offer, definitely. Okay. And were you able to travel when you were young or was it only sort of once you got to sort of university age, you were able to sort of get out of the hometown and, and see a bit more of the bigger cities? I traveled, traveled a bit in the US and Canada, but not, not as much overseas until kind of after high school and things like that. Okay. And in terms of work, were you someone at a young age who knew what you wanted to do or were you just sort of, sort of finish high school and then sort of just go towards the first university course or degree that shows up? How did you decide what you wanted to do once you finished school? No, I think I always had a desire to be in business and I actually went to university, graduated from with a Bachelor of Commerce with a major in marketing and finance and you know, I guess I always kind of gravitated toward more of those entrepreneurial, you know, jobs. I love people. I love sales. I love building things. You know, I guess that's kind of where uh, I've always kind of ended up in my in my various roles. And was that something you did when you were young? Were you running a, a small business as a teenager? Did your parents or, or relatives or, or siblings that have businesses that you worked in or in local community? I guess, I guess just the typical things kids do, you know, whether it's the, um, I never had a paper route, but, you know, I <laughs> cut grass for a lot of the neighbors and all that kind of stuff around. And so I guess, yeah, I didn't really have, you know, my own business or anything before that, but you're always doing little bits and pieces to make money on the side kind of thing growing up. So, 
you know, always just find a way, I guess, to make a buck so you could you could buy what you want, I guess, as a kid. Mm. And what was your strategy for when you finished uni? Did you want to work in marketing? Did you want to work in finance? Did you want to start your own business? You mentioned you're sort of quite entrepreneurial. What was the, the end goal if, if you had one as a uni student? To be honest, I guess after university, I didn't really even know what I wanted to do. You know, a bachelor business degree is, is very broad. You can go into mm. a lot of different uh, industries, as you know. And interesting enough, since university, I've always worked in the healthcare industry. First as a sales representative before, you know, managing divisions and now companies. I started out in pharmaceuticals initially, right out of university before moving to the med device world, where I've actually spent working the last 20 years now. Medical devices, I guess, is what actually brought me to Australia. The company I was working for was acquired. My company we're hearing a lot about in the news now, Pfizer. Mm. Uh, that's making our vaccines. And so it actually created the perfect opportunity for me to go traveling and really quench my passion for, you know, scuba diving, motorbiking, exploring, you know, far flung off the beaten trail places. And that's actually how I got to Australia. So after traveling for over a year, I landed in Sydney in 2004. Interesting enough with the typical backpacker dream of buying a van, you know, surfing up and down the East Coast. But I guess fate had other plans for me. Uh, and I ended up working with uh, an American med device company called Stryker, selling sports medicine implants. And, and you know what? I loved it. I loved Australia. I loved the job. And it was just awesome being able to see firsthand the impact your products had on a patient's quality of life. I guess what did I do then? Then I set up a new division where we really actually set new standards on how we build and design operating rooms here in Australia. For example, we eliminated pushing these big, bulky medical carts and monitors around the hospital with a streamlined design that mounted this equipment right in the operating theater itself, drastically improving safety, ergonomics, and efficiency for the surgical team. So, so you had a lot of credibility by that point because you've been in the industry a long time across different countries. When you were first starting in the healthcare industry, how did you sort of build credibility with these medical professionals? You know, they're very well trained. They've been in the game a long time. You're a young sort of up and coming entrepreneurial sales guy. You've got a big company, so they're not sort of buying your personal expertise, but was it hard to build the initial sort of credibility and trust as a young graduate? It was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, medical professionals and doctors and surgeons and, you know, nurses, they're, they're busy professionals. They don't have, you know, time for people that are going to waste their time. I think that's the challenge is you got to create value for them. Creating value can be accomplished a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's about some information on a product. Sometimes maybe it's some information on a study that they've read or so, so somehow, but you got to find a way to create value, creating value and, and, and doing what's asked. And I think that also has an opportunity to create trust in, in the med device world anyway. You know, you have to be trusted, you know, in order to do business uh, with each other. So, I think that was the that was the key. It's, it's not something that's easy. I know when I arrived in Australia, I didn't know anybody here. And so it was really kind of starting from ground zero. You know, you didn't have the high school relationships, the university relationships and so on. So anyways, that's that's really how you have to start is building your personal brand. And, and why sort of Australia? How did that, like you said, even from a young age, you wanted to explore the world and, and go to different places. How did Australia versus, say, the US, which is a giant healthcare sort of market and, and leader often in that sort of space, or Europe, how did Australia on the other side of the world come up on your sort of life plans? Yeah, good question. I mean, I probably picked the farthest place away from your family and friends, but <laughs> I, fell, I fell in love and, uh, you know, 
I came over here with my partner, who's now my wife, you know, at the time, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, but is now, but we fell in love with Australia. You know, I still tell anybody, uh, you know, I still think Sydney is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. This country is just amazing. It has so much opportunity here. We got great weather uh, year round. People are fantastic. And, and to be honest, I didn't find it that, that different from growing up in Canada. We have very similar immigration patterns. Mm -hmm. So I think culturally, there was a lot of similarities, but yet we're so different. Mm. You know, when I go back to Canada, you see all the Aussies at the ski fields, <laughs> you know, and here you see all the Canadians bumming around the beaches. So um, the grass and, is always uh, so yeah, greener, right? To, the grass uh, is always greener. Exactly. But it's just, it's just a fantastic um, country. And I guess just over the years, we've just decided to make this as home. So yeah, this is, this is where we are. Yeah. And what did your friends and family think at the time? You're from a small town in Canada, then you moved to the big city, you've studied, you're working, and then you say, I'm moving to the other side of the world, like you said, as far away as possible. Uh, were they supportive? Were they sort of worried they're not going to see you as often? Do they think it was a strange move? Or uh, do you remember the, the, um, the people around you and their reaction when you first moved to Australia? Like anybody... You know, just like when when Aussies moved to the UK or something, you always think it's going to be for a couple of years and then you come <laughs> back. And, and you know, probably initially, I probably thought the same thing. But like I said, it's just it's it's funny how uh, you fall in love with a place and, and your career and your job that you create and, and so on. And like I said, um, you know, it's the world's a smaller place than it was, you know, 25 mm. years ago. And we've always had a chance to go back to Canada and visit family and friends, which we've always been very thankful for. And you and you definitely uh, appreciate it, you know, considering now it's, it's the longest we've ever actually been back to see our family now because of everything mm. shut down. But no, I think everybody's been very supportive and uh, we've always had lots of visitors and stuff like that from Canada. So it's and it's a wonderful place to visit. Let's face it. Everybody loves to come mm. over here. And with the seasons being opposite, you know, I guess rather than my folks go down to uh, to the States for the to, to escape the winter, you know, they get a chance to come over here and spend time with us. So it's, it's been very supportive. Yeah. And so you're in the healthcare sector, you're liking, you're progressing, and it, you know, but it tends to be dominated by very big multinational corporations, just sort of the nature of the industry. What made you want to start your own business in general and, and, and specifically in that space? Uh, you know, very, um, again, quite a competitive and sort of in some ways difficult, I suppose, space. Was there a specific event that triggered your decision to, to strike out on your own and start your own company? Yes, there was. I guess, you know, I probably definitely didn't have the fairy tale start like many other entrepreneurs or actually how I ever thought I'd ever start a company in my wildest dreams. I actually started uh, my company in a moment of very tragic circumstances. The company that owned the business I worked for actually put the group of company into voluntary administration. And over 100 people lost their jobs. And uh, see, seeing the devastation this caused on so many families is something I'll never forget. It also had a very detrimental effect on me personally, the team I led, you know, the people you work with every day, you know, the impact on families, you know, people have mortgages, you know, school fees to pay, you know, and, and they lose everything. Not only do they lose their job, you know, lose superannuation contributions and so on. You know, it also had a very, very big impact on the on our customers, you know, mm. on the hospitals that we serve. You know, uh, we had hospitals midway through construction projects or, you know, in the middle of design and planning things, you know, procurement decisions have been made and, you know, had a very, very big impact, you know. With so their so project why did the venture capitalists pull the plug on a whole group of companies, like I said, putting 100 people out of work, stopping uh, hospital construction midway through? Why did they sort of pull the ripcord and, and stop all of that? 
Well, I think that's a probably a question for them. You know, <laughs> I can only speculate, but obviously they, uh, I think at the end of the day, when you get involved with private equity, a lot of times, you know, they're great at providing money to allow you to grow mm-hmm. or to acquire other businesses. They make investments effectively. And a lot of times, not everybody that they're not in the business of running companies. Mm. And unfortunately in this situation, I, I think there would have been a lot of running the group of companies and it probably got to be in the too hard basket. There's easier ways to, uh, to make money and uh, they decided to move on. Yeah. And was it your first thought? I'm going to step up. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to turn this problem into an opportunity or did part of you think I've got to look for another job? What was sort of your, the options on the table in your head, sort of, so to speak, after this shock sort of um, and to what you were doing? Yeah, I think it, uh, when you get news like that, I think initially your head just spins. Mm. You know, you obviously consider all your opportunities, you know, and you go find another job, you know, which is lots of opportunities. Like I said, it's a great country we live in. You know, it actually probably took a week or two for it to sink in. And it was really some of the my staff, the people around me that that really actually gave me the belief that, hey, we can do this. You know, the more you think about it and, uh, and you know, and your trusted advisors and things like that, you see an opportunity to do something good and something right for the market. You know, and with the backing, I have to give my wife a big, big shout out here. You know, imagine coming home and you've got a very young family. You know, mm-hmm. your world's just been put in complete <laughs> upheaval. You know, you come up with this plan, you know, let's sell the family home. Let's start the business. <laughs> let's, you know, let's do something good and right for the industry. And, and it's also doing something on the back of something that obviously didn't do too well, you know. But I think the, the foundation was there. It was good people. And, and good products, you know, unfortunately, we're, like I said, we're, we're one, one company out of many companies. So I think the fundamentals were there, but, you know, she backed me and I know not a lot of people would do that. So I really give her a shout out. Was there any doubt in her mind? Was she thinking, you know, it's too much risk, wrong time, family, selling the house is a big ask and, and sort of putting that into a sort of a high risk opportunity or was it, you know, she really knew that your passion, your commitment, your experience would sort of persevere and she sort of was willing to put that faith in you right from the start? You know what? No, it wasn't uh, something that, you know, took a week to make a decision. The, the, the support was there right from the beginning. You know, I think she, no, she definitely believed in me and she also loved the fact that, you know, this is a chance to do something good in the market. Mm. It wasn't without its risks. It wasn't necessarily unconditional, but, <laughs> uh, but we, got, we got there in the end and um, it, it, she played a, a very crucial role, but also, you know, there was, there was five key employees that also played a very important role. You know, the fact that they, they believed in, in the vision that, that we could do this. Um, we all offered some very different skill sets. And I guess together, we all came together and that's how we started Wilhelm Integrated Solutions. And so you've got this excitement out of a, a difficult, traumatic sort of event comes this rebirth, this idea, your wife's bought in, you're bought in, the key staff are bought in, and then it's the actual doing part. And what was that first 12 months sort of journey like where you say, I'm going to do it, everyone's excited, and then reality hits and then sort of talk us through that first 12 months of actually operating the business. I think for us, it was a lot of adrenaline. <laughs> like I think back and I think back to the first 12 months, I'm like, man, I, I don't think I could ever work like that again, you know, <laughs> where you're working eight, 18 to 20 hours a day and, and that's seven days a week. Mm. I remember I stopped drinking alcohol, everything. You're just laser focused on, on what's in front of you. For me as well, you know, my personal reputation was on the line, you know, you know, the company bears our family name. 
we had to secure all new product lines mm-hmm. as a startup. It was a true startup. And we had to build relationships uh, very quickly and repair relationships, you know, for the existing customers that were affected. So not only did our portfolio have to meet specifications, but it had to offer Australian hospitals and clinicians something that was innovative and provided more value than what they could get elsewhere if they went back to market. And that's really the decision we were faced with. So there was tremendous risk. Uh, The products had never been used in this country before. We had to raise a significant amount of capital to get going. But you know what's inspiring, Derek? The entire company adapted a mindset that's with us today. Mm -hmm. Never give up. When your back's against the wall, find a way. Never give up. And so we all came together and that's what really made us made us successful. And where did that, what was the origin of that never give up mindset? It took you through the hard times. It allowed you to do the seemingly impossible. What was the, 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 uh, the beginning of that? I think uh, I, I can probably only speak for myself personally here, but you know, the never giving up mindset is something my mom taught me. When I was in university, my family was involved in a very serious car accident. And uh, my mom almost died. And uh, she suffered a serious brain injury. And I still remember when the family met with the doctors, they told us that uh, my mom would never walk or see again. So you can imagine the effect this had on uh, my dad Mm. and our entire family. So, well, but you know what? My mom never gave up, you know, a few weeks. And then months later, she began to see some shadows, you know, then some colors. Some of her memories began to come back. And she pushed herself to, you know, be able to use her her fingers and then her hands Mm -hmm. to the point, you know, she walked out of that hospital less than a year later. And uh, she kept working to the point that, you know, I might have been, I think, eight or 10 years later, she's even able to get her license back Mm -hmm. and drive again and and to become independent. And, you know, the doctors still to this day call her a miracle, you know, where other parts of your brain can take over functions that should never have come back. So absolutely incredible. So I guess when the odds are insurmountable, you wonder to yourself, how can we possibly overcome the challenges we faced in this business those first couple of years? I guess for myself, my mom really gives me the inner inner strength to push on. I guess really that's, in my opinion, where the never give up mindset comes from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose when, when your clients and their clients, the, the patients have to sort of have that attitude, the least you can do is sort of embody that in your business because otherwise you're sort of letting them down. Right, if you're not bringing everything you have and, and dealing with the, the sort of um, challenges to, to meet to the standards and the opportunities and provide the best possible uh, support to the hospitals and the end users. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as I know this is just isn't about, you know, business or, you know, but entrepreneurship. I think one of my favorite quotes is the difference between a successful person and others is not a lack of strength, not a lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of will. Mm. And so um, I truly believe that. Yeah. And so going back to sort of the company growth, so you got through that very difficult first year with that really positive attitude. And then you're rapidly growing. You're doing nearly 11 million in revenue a couple of years in, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So what drove that rapid growth? You get through the hard early part where a lot of businesses don't make it, but then to actually become one of the fastest growing and sort of most successful new businesses in Australia, what led to that? early stage and that sort of rapid scaling up? Yeah, good question. I'd probably say two two main drivers. And uh, the first is which is probably our awesome team. We've mm-hmm. got such a good team. And the second would be the innovative solutions we've brought to market that are really setting new standards 
in healthcare in Australia today. I guess the, the first thing, you know, the team, you know, the awesome team, you know, we, they always deliver. They're good at what they do. They're experienced. And most importantly, they genuinely care for our company and our customers. Like you can't teach that. You know, you can't teach someone, you know, to go into a hospital at 1130 at night, you know, when, when they might have something else on because mm. they genuinely care for our customers. And I, I like to always think I love sports. So uh, I like to always give like more of a championship team analogy. You know, one part is not greater than the whole. You can have the most talented team. But if they don't play well together, you need to have people in their roles. Mm. And if everybody's in their roles pulling together, they can be an unstoppable force. So just as important, like any team, you know, you need the sales, you got to execute the projects, you need to deliver, you know, you need a service and support. Everybody really comes together. And I think that's a real point of difference for us. And so you had that initial team who you already knew you worked well with, but what about growing that, which is sometimes a challenge, but you're growing quickly, you got to add a lot of people. How do you fill that need and quickly add people while not diluting the quality and the passion and the intensity of the initial few staff members? I think that's a challenge for everybody, but I think it comes down to culture, you know, strong management, good leadership, creating a good environment where people really want to work in. So is, is it a challenge? Yes, I'm sure it's a challenge for every business, but I guess today we've been able to successfully do that as we've continued to expand throughout Australia and New Zealand. Is there a specific thing you've done in, in, in filtering the mindset of the people and how you describe the business to people who apply? Is it a, a referral, word of mouth sort of driven recruitment? Any particular ways you've been able to attract those sort of people into the business? Yeah, definitely. You can't be me too. Mm. You know, people don't go to work and go do the exact same thing and work <laughs> for someone else. So we said from day one, when we start this business, we have to be innovative. I know a lot of companies say that, you mm. know, we're innovative and so on, but we have to be innovative. And I'll give you, give you a couple examples mm. here. So first one is, you may or may not know this, but back injuries, they're a very common uh, injury in healthcare, mm. you know, especially amongst nurses or those caring, caring for patients. And often these injuries can be severely debilitating or even career ending. Mm. A few years ago in ICU, for example, or intensive care unit, should use the proper words so everybody knows, less than 10% of rooms would have had a ceiling hoist because it was expensive mm -hmm. and it was very difficult to coordinate it. So if you build a 50-bed ICU in a major hospital in Melbourne, they might have a hoist in three or four of them. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, nurses would have to go get a manual hoist and, and, and you know take four people to uh, safely transfer a patient. So what we brought to the market was an amazing technology called a patient lift pendant, where we were able to provide this hoist at every single bay and do it for a quarter of the price. So it ticked the box economically. And because the lift was always there, incredible thing, we're now seeing patient mobilization increase by like 250% in a hospital and still a drastic reduction in staff injuries. So we're making patient care easier and safer for staff. And I think stories like that, it attracts people to come and work for us because they look at the impact and they see it. They can go talk to managers of various departments and they want to jump on and be part of the growth and also the, the great contributions they're making to, uh, to the healthcare market. Yeah, and I think people forget that, that like it, it's not just the health of the patients, which of course matters in a hospital, but if the caregivers are, like I said, having career-ending injuries, not able to give the care, you know, that, that's equally bad for the patient outcomes, but also for the individual staff. You know, they have to, their health is just as important so they can keep doing the, the important work. 
that they're doing, right? Absolutely. So that's an easy to overlook aspect. Absolutely. And another problem that we are laser focused on in the company right now is healthcare acquired infections. Mm. You know, a publication by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare estimates is 80,000 hospital acquired infections in Australia per year. It costs the public healthcare system over almost over three and a half billion dollars. But when you actually talk to nurses or doctors or things like that, they don't even really talk about the economic impact. Mm. They, they actually see the patients. You got to stay in the hospital longer, it can lead to, lo- lead to long-term disability and even death or unnecessary deaths, really, because you didn't have that infection before you came to the hospital. So as an organization, I guess, what attracts people to come work for us or the culture? We believe hospitals should be designed for zero, meaning they should have a goal of zero infections and zero harm. Not too different when, you know, you see on the big billboards, you know, it's not like we only, it's okay to have 50 road accidents a year. Mm. You know, we're trying to get to zero road accidents per year. And we've adopted a similar mindset in, in our, in our company to tackle this problem. We've actually did a couple of things that are, that are available to Australian hospitals here today. Number one, uh, we brought clean room technology from semiconductor and pharmaceutical manufacturing plants into the operating theater. We have a product called Airframe that can provide up to a thousand times less particles in the air and in the surfaces than a conventional operating theater in, Aust- in uh, health Australian theaters today. A thousand times cleaner air, like absolutely incredible. And we're using proven technology from other industries to do that. More importantly as well, what we're also doing is the lights in this system that we're integrating, another technology called Indigo Clean. So imagine Derek, LED room lights, normal room lights, that can, are safe for humans, and they can kill harmful bacteria automatically and continuously, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 10 years mm. on hey. hard and soft sur- on the air and in hard and soft surfaces. And more importantly, it's it's backed by amazing peer-reviewed evidence. You know, so if you apply that to the problem of healthcare-acquired infections, we're reducing these infections by up to 70% in U.S. hospitals today. And where do these innovations come from? Are you constantly sort of sourcing the best possible new ideas globally? Are there ideas you have where you own the patents and you're sort of having them custom sort of built? How do you sort of find the ideas or the products or how much of the supply chain in the development manufacture of these products are you sort of involved with versus the distribution and implementation? Yeah, good question. So I guess what we do is, you know, we're really, we're really close to a lot of uh, hospitals and a lot of clinicians. So we understand the problems that they, or challenges that they tell us they're faced with in the organization. That we, Yes, we do. We, we go to international conferences. Uh, we got a great network throughout, throughout the world, really, that we can get introductions into some of these innovative technologies. To date, we're not manufacturing any of, any of these technologies in Australia, though it is on the roadmap. Mm-hmm. For where, where do we want to be in five years? Yes, we want to be manufacturing some of these technologies in Australia. And uh, it, is, it is an ambitious goal for us, but we believe we can do it. We believe we can do it affordably and also drive down the price of healthcare. Another thing that we've, um, that we've just brought in about a year ago was ultraviolet light or UVC robot technology. And this is out of the US. And we can disinfect a room or a space and it's not just within hospitals, but outside of hospitals, faster and more effectively than current systems and processes. Let me give you an example. If you think what's happening 
at the COVID hotels around Australia. And mm. I think you're, you said at the beginning, beginning of the interview, you're from Melbourne, right? So mm -hmm. you guys just came out of a five-day lock, lockdown. So imagine if we could send our robots in and disinfect the space before the cleaners go into that environment. And even after they claim we can disinfect it again, it takes 10 to 15 minutes. We might be able to avoid costly lockdowns like the one that just occurred in Melbourne. And I, and I think I remember reading something that it cost the Victorian economy over $500 million. Mm. So, um, you know, technology like this exists. It's used extensively in hospitals, in airports, in restaurants, in hotels, in other markets around the world. You know, it exists here in Australia as well. And so obviously your zero harm, zero infection model, you've been sort of pushing that for years and making great improvements. And then the coronavirus comes along last year. And I imagine, you know, sort of raised the awareness and importance of infectious hospital sort of, you know, from one out of 100 to 100 out of 100. So it was what changes have you seen in your clients, in awareness, in the broader sort of market, in supply chains since the coronavirus? And like you said, your mission for, for zero infections when suddenly now everyone's a lot more uh, aware and very interested and motivated to um, to take care and manage it uh, towards a, a zero infection rate. Yeah, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been interesting. I think, first of all, there's a lot for all of us to be thankful for in Australia and New Zealand. You know, they call us the lucky country mm. and we might be the luckiest country on, on <laughs> earth on how well we've did. So kudos to... Um, government officials, hospitals, and, and caregivers that, you know, they're the real heroes that have actually allowed us to live at least more, more of a normal life than, than a lot of other places around the world. But interesting enough, you'd think that there would be blinders off, what can we do to be preventative, to protect the most vulnerable, and so on, but it's actually the opposite, Derek. The blinders are on. We don't have the time or the capability to look out for what, other than what we've been doing right now when it comes to cleaning or disinfecting protocols. We don't have the capacity to look at things like ultraviolet light because it's not in the current guidelines or protocols on how we disinfect spaces. So you, you think that it would be like, what can we do innovative to help? Mm. But it's actually been very difficult. No one actually has the capacity or the time. And, and, and we understand why. Mm to actually look at new technology or new ways or what other countries are doing. If anything, it's actually caused more stress and people have a lot less time than they did before. So you think it would have been a, a boom, but, but it actually been a bit of the opposite. And, and that's the irony, isn't it, with innovation, like because people want to be innovative, but often then when you show people an innovation, they're not always as receptive as you'd hope. You say, look, it's going to halve the cost, it's going to double the effectiveness and, and we'll do it all for you. And, but, but like you said, if their mind is so focused on something else, they're not necessarily always open to that innovation. So how do you, as an innovation-led company, how do you continually, when your products are not just stock standard, 10% cheaper, they're new, they're exciting, they're different, how do you get a, a sort of sometimes conservative, large institutional establishment clients to try and take yeah. a chance on these new, new ideas? Yeah. Like I said, we've had some success, you know, and I think um, probably not to the level that we've seen in Europe or, you know, uh, in the US or Canada. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think, it, Derek, it starts with an increased macro awareness. You mentioned it earlier. You know, there's mm -hmm. a macro awareness that has, come, that has gone on in the general community that didn't exist before. And that's around how, how viruses are transferred or spread mm -hmm. or, you know, and how spaces get contaminated. contaminated. 
So I think it'd be good to see more of a preventative and proactive approach. You know, our current guidelines are behind in many ways from what is happening, say, in the U.S. You know, technologies like ultraviolet light or UVC are well established in these markets, yet really in its infancy here in Australia. Uh, in fact, it's not even recommended in the current infection control guidelines, uh, yet widely adapted in thousands of healthcare facilities and other industries overseas. So, yeah, so I think there's there's a long ways to go, but I think over time, you know, I think there'll be a chance to revisit these local guidelines and to um, see how we go. And, I mean, it's some of the challenge, like you said, Australia and New Zealand compared to, to most of the world in the major markets has actually done fairly well in, in terms of responding to COVID infection numbers, total deaths. So in some ways, there's not as much sort of building on fire urgency as other countries where there's massive infection rates, huge amounts of deaths. So is there a a certain amount of complacency where it's sort of like the problem solved versus, you know, we'll try anything because we're desperate to to solve a a big problem. Is that kind of an interesting paradox within Australia? That that definitely would have an effect. effect. I would agree with that. However, these technologies were quite widely adopted previously as well. So, you know, in use sometimes maybe eight to 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like it's new stuff that's been rushed to market. It's unproven. Mm. Uh, I know our UBC robots, for example, were uh, at ground zero during the original coronavirus outbreak, the MERS outbreak Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And that's where a lot of our data came from around the effectiveness against coronavirus and and disinfecting these spaces. So I I think really it's, I think it comes down to... um, guidelines and things like that are that's what they are they're guidelines they take it, it takes time to to change and i think over time you will see a, a, a review of those guidelines but i also think like you said before i think we've did very well here and that probably has definitely had an impact mm. and are there other technologies that maybe you haven't yet got ready to go but they're sort of coming down the pipe and you know you're really excited about that would you know help healthcare practitioners healthcare patients hospitals doctors any other sort of big ideas that are sort of coming uh covid related or not yeah not necessarily covid related but one of the things we are pushing for very strongly is in other industries i think i mentioned semiconductor and pharmaceutical plants mm-hmm. clean rooms they actually have very strict aerobiological standards for their environments and we'll never to be we'll never be able to achieve a class one environment in an operating room, but we can go to a performance based specification just like these other industries have, which will definitely lead to improved patient outcomes, less infections, and uh, less cost to our healthcare system. So why not adopt a, an ISO uh, well established standard for the operating room and take a more preventative approach? Uh, to contamination control and preventing infection. I think that's probably the one thing is it'd be great to be more preventative than reactionary. And is there a reason why you think that sometimes, um, I mean, is it a healthcare industry challenge? Is it an Australia challenge? Why, like you said, sometimes we're less preventative, more reactionary, which sort of healthcare is sometimes criticised for sort of treating sick people but not preventing people from getting sick? Well, like I said, I think sometimes I think one of the bigger driver for change in the United States was if you actually went to a hospital and had, say, for example, a knee replacement surgery and you got an infection, the insurance fund would actually charge back the infection for treating the infection back to the hospital. Mm. So the hospital all of a sudden said, it's great, we can do all these operations, but if we're getting infection, getting charged to treat the infections, it's really hurting our bottom line. 
So in Australia right now, it's not like that. So you can get an infection. And there's not really a penalty back to any one hospital. Mm. So when that changed seven, eight years ago in the US, it really drove a lot of innovation through how we build and design healthcare facilities, how we clean them, how we disinfect them, and so on. And, and eventually, you know, we are hearing some some rumblings that that will be coming to Australia, but I don't believe it has at this stage. Yeah, and you think, I mean, definitely within the private health insurance, healthcare aspect within Australia, that there would be eventually a move towards that, right? Because insurers always, you know, they're in the business of managing risk. And if they're sort of paying the consequence for risk that's not sort of on them, you know, they'd be very keen to shift that back onto the hospital. So yeah, yeah, potentially. I think what we're focused on is we're focused on improving patient outcomes. Mm. And anyway, any way we can do that, it's what we're going to strive to do as a business. Like I said, we we really believe in zero, mm-hmm. D for Z, designing um, healthcare facilities for zero infections and zero harm. And that's and you know that's that's where we've been aligning ourselves with similar people that believe believe what we believe. You know that one infection is too many, and um, those are the customers and those are the um, healthcare facilities uh, that we've really been working with today. Yeah, because you don't want people who do it right at the last minute when they're forced to through their insurer you want people who want to improve right even when it's not it's not mandatory and it's not a a sort of a direct a a sort of compliance issue it's a a desire and aligned values and mindset and goals for the patient yeah yeah that's it absolutely so so if we zoom out for a second outside of um, healthcare um, outside of the hospitals and look at entrepreneurship new business formation in Australia. I'm sure you meet a lot of other entrepreneurs. Um, You've been a a fast growth entrepreneur yourself. Having worked and lived in other markets globally, what are Australian entrepreneurs doing well? And where are they still, you know, maybe behind in other markets or or missing out on opportunities? First of all, I think I just got to give a shout out. When When we started the company, it was just awesome to have the customers and industry peers and so on just rally around you. You know, there was really that amazing level of support, you know, good on you, mate, you know, <laughs> have a go, you know, all that kind of stuff. You had to earn every step of the way, but there, it was just, it was just so good to, uh, to feel that support from the, from the healthcare community. I think one of the challenges we are faced in Australia is, um, as an entrepreneur's access to capital. Mm. So you've got a great business idea. Where do you go to, you know, the banks don't want to talk to you until you have three years of financials behind you and, and so on. So it's very difficult, I think, initially to get that initial seed funding. So how did you do that? How did you, in a capital intensive industry, again, a lot of businesses are often service focused, at least initially, just to get positive cash flow, but but you needed the capital to get started, as you mentioned. So how did you overcome that barrier as an entrepreneur in Australia? Well, we self-funded a lot and then we uh, and we went to the private sector. So, you know, we've got family offices and so let's, and such like that here in Australia you know, that's the route that we have to go down, you know, and obviously we're now, you know, with one of the big four banks and so on, and they've been a great partner of ours. But I just think initially as an entrepreneur, you know, it's not easy here. It's a little bit different than if you're in the US, for example, and there's so many sources of funding, you know, and when I talk to other companies uh, and how they started and so on. So, um, and I think the other challenge, I guess, for us that we faced in, because we're in healthcare, you know, the odds can be, seem insurmountable sometimes you know it's an industry dominated by multinationals Mm. there's very very few healthcare um, startups in australia 
we don't manufacture a lot here. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's becoming less and less, but especially in healthcare. And I always find it amazing. You know, you travel overseas to these international conferences and you obviously see the Americans there and the Chinese and the Swiss and the Germans, mm-hmm. uh, even the Canadians. And I always wonder why aren't we doing more here? Mm-hmm. We have such a strong talent base here. Great people, great, uh, you know, our, our proximity to Asia has this great market at our doorstep. And, you know, I think growing these new ventures or, or, or supporting more entrepreneurs on a global scale is vitally important to the Australian economy. And, and what was your pitch to the family office? Were they family offices that had invested in startups or did they have more money in, in property and large cap sort of listed stocks? How did you, like you said, convince them to invest in a startup and then within that to invest in, like you said, a, a difficult sort of healthcare startup, which isn't, isn't as common as maybe a consumer facing, you know, product or something like that. Yeah. And it all happened very quickly. I, I think the big thing is, is they recognized that we were genuine mm-hmm. and they always say that when you're willing to sell your house or put your own money in, it's mm. very easy to make that investment decision mm. rather than just asking for someone else's money. But I think they really believed in the team that we'd put together. They believed in the customers that we wanted to help. They wanted to do something good and right for the healthcare industry as well. And most importantly, there was a lot of value alignment. And it was almost like speed dating. We didn't know each other beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was, we spent a lot of time together over a, over a couple week period. And when they decided to invest, you know, at the end of the day, I think they invested in, in people, mm. you know, and, and that we were going to pull this off. So, you know, it was, and it's, and it's, it's continued to be a wonderful relationship as, as we've gone forward. And do you see that as a potential funding source in Australia? Are there enough uh, private sort of family offices? Do they have enough capital? Or I mean, not obviously to create a, a huge sort of amount of new businesses, but could that be a, a sort of sector? Or is that where like a emerging sort of startup VC kind of ecosystem would come from? Yeah, definitely. I, I just think it all depends on the the funding source and the rate that you obviously get the funding for, and that's obviously associated the risk as well. But it would definitely be a, definitely be a source. You know, the the partner that we chose uh, had a track record of investing in startups and continuing the partnership for many many years, mm-hmm. and they also had a tie to uh, to Med Devices, mm-hmm. to a, an unassociated business. But you know, I think so. They understood in a way what we were trying to do. So, and then ended up being a good fit. And so a lot of the big banks have incubators, the telcos, does anyone in the healthcare, pharmaceutical, I know a lot of the hospitals sort of government, but is anyone in that sort of space running incubators to, to sort of launch and, and um, you know, new startups and ventures or, or not so much, or they just do their own internal R&D? I think the government's actually put together a pretty robust R&D program mm-hmm. uh, we, we haven't participated in it but um, I know I know a number of businesses that have but I wouldn't be because because we went down a different path and uh, like I said it wasn't something that we inched along from an idea to three four years you mm-hmm. know it was it was an instant jump into the pot and <laughs> sink or swim type mentality so I probably wouldn't be best to comment on, on all that kind of stuff no, that's all right. And so again, so stepping back one layer further again, you know, if someone's 18 to 20 years old, you know, maybe they're interested in healthcare. We, again, COVID sort of put that on a lot of people's mind as, you know, sort of obviously the role, I think, and importance of, of doctors and nurses and, and paramedics have all been sort of elevated within society and, you know, what they do. 
What advice would you give, again, a 20-year-old maybe about healthcare, working directly or indirectly in, the se- in that sector, or you know, maybe someone interested in entrepreneurship, interested in, in starting a business? What advice would you give to a, a young person who's a bit unsure of what to do? Well, I think it, you got to take the plunge and do it. You know, it's very rewarding, but at the same time, it's definitely not as easy <laughs> as you would have thought. It, it's not it's not an easy choice that you take, and there's a lot of other things. You know, you, I hear the similar story. You give up a lot mm. to start a business. The other thing I think, which is very important, is place trust with discretion and intuition. Sometimes you just know what's right in your gut, and other times you don't. There's no easy path to success. It's not like, it's just like, oh, if I just trust someone, they can just go do it all for me. <laughs> it doesn't usually work that way. And that's why I think you need to surround yourself with a, with a team of people who share your values. Very, very important. Was there any part you learned the hard way where you put trust in the wrong supplier, the wrong staff, the wrong investor and things that didn't work out and then you, you adapted and sort of improved or, or where you ignored maybe your ignition, uh, your intuition? And because of that, it sort of didn't work out how you thought or or any sort of hard-won lessons there? I just think it's the lessons that you learn on the path. Even a lot of it are before starting the company. Hmm. You know, I think trust is a very, very important thing. And like I said before, sharing, sharing the same values. You know, uh, life is too short to come to work every day and not enjoy where you're hmm. working or the people that you work with. But if you like the people that you work with, if you got a best friend at work, if you really feel like you're part of something, it can be very, very enjoyable, very rewarding. And it's not about the hours you clocked in, it's about what you're creating and what you're mm. contributing. And so I think that is the most important thing. Absolutely. Even in hindsight, you know, it's it's like I said before, the two to me, the two most important things are trust and sharing the same values. You yeah. know, if we got if we got that, we got that right, you know, we we can do a lot together. If we don't have those things, it just becomes very difficult and hard. Yeah, and you've built a great foundation already on those principles, like you've mentioned, and and you're innovating and you're looking to the future. So, what does the next five or ten years look like for the company? You have sort of long term, um, again beyond the, the zero infection, zero harm sort of mission. Any other long term five ten year sort of plans, ideas, vision you want to bring to life? Well, I think I got enough on my plate here right now, <laughs> but I'll tell you what: we want to be the market leader, and mm. we want to be a company our customers think of first. And it might be a simple goal, but, you know, this is our only our fifth year. Mm-hmm. We have a long ways to go. And uh, we're very, very aware that as a company, we need to continue to innovate. We need to continue to execute. And we need to continue to provide evidence-backed solutions. You know, as we talked about tonight, we've defined the problem of infections in healthcare and harm. And even the impact of COVID-19 has had on our society. So I think, you know, really, what's the five to 10 years path, I I think I break it down, you know, we need better dialogue Mm -hmm. and collaboration to help design the best path forward. You know, the general public, I think they really need to become more aware of these issues. Because when you have awareness, it it leads to change, Change is then demanded. And uh, it's demanded of the healthcare industry, and even the legislative guidelines. So I think there's a substantial opportunity today and in the future for change in the healthcare industry. And it's about collaborating not being adversarial, but really collaborating with government, with industry, with hospitals, with clinicians to set new standards for infection control, hygiene, cleanliness, safety. And I think that's really expanded 
beyond healthcare, you know, to, to our world, to our country. And I think we're going to be faced with different challenges, you know, whether it be our schools, whether it be public transport, mm-hmm. you know, and so on. And then we got a lot of our hopes on the vaccine, but, you mm-hmm. know, it still might be around for a long time. So that's mm-hmm. why I think it's even gone outside the healthcare industry. And I mean, do you see yourself expanding geographically to bring that vision and mission and market leadership position to other other markets? Yeah, I mean, that would be wonderful. Like I said, I spoke earlier about bringing manufacturing to Australia, mm-hmm. something I would love to do, create Australian jobs, make things here in Australia for Australians, mm-hmm. something I'm passionate about. And, and, you know, once we take that step, who knows where we can go with it? You know, why can't we supply to other markets? you know, especially in our back door, we mentioned Asia before, Mm -hmm. New Zealand and so on. So at the end of the day, I think we have to acknowledge we still are a small market in the global, Mm. global space, but we're an important market. And I guess we just want to do our part for Australians. Yeah, which like you said, might be where you become the uh, manufacturer of these innovative ideas. And then other people, you're helping to distribute those ideas around the world, um, even if you're not directly sort of the one selling it, you know, into those markets, but other people are, are sort of uh, buying it from you to, uh, to implement yeah. it. Yeah, it'd be wonderful. And you mentioned research, obviously, you know, there's a lot at stake, you know, you can't just sort of experiment with new things. So research and data is super important. In the future, do you see yourself commissioning research on specific areas or, or you sort of you access a broader body of knowledge, but you wouldn't sort of fund sort of specific research or obviously you're building your own data and and ideas or how does that sort of work in terms of you know getting research better faster sooner yeah absolutely that's one of the things i said earlier you know we need to provide evidence-backed solutions so when i say back that's you know peer-reviewed research we've already did studies in australia that have been published in international uh, journals on infection control Mm. we are uh, about to sign off on a couple studies down in a a leading melbourne hospital Mm-hmm. Again, on this topic. So, no, we, we definitely put our money where our mouth is. And it's something we want to continue to collaborate with the industry, with, with government to provide evidence-backed data um, that stacks up at the end of the day. That, that's, that's what we strive to do as a, as, a, as a company. And it's great that we're able to even um, do some of these research projects in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, excellent. And do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with, Chad? No, Derek, I think thanks for the opportunity to share a little bit about our company story and uh, and how we got there. And like I said, I feel we're just, we're still at the beginning. We got a long ways to go, but we really believe in, in what we're doing. And, and thanks for the opportunity today and, and having a chat. You're welcome, Chad. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem at all. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.